Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a news buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. If you tuned in Monday on this program, we spoke with Iowa lawmakers about a bill that would remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. It would also have added gender dysphoria to the definition of disability in Iowa code. Now, on that program, we spoke with an Iowan who has his personal stake in that bill. He would have been personally impacted. Uh, Chris Small joins us again, a transgender man, Urbandale resident. Chris, thank you for being with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, Now, to recount that you and your wife moved back to Iowa from California. You have a 13-year-old child. On Wednesday, lawmakers declined to advance this bill that would have reduced legal protections for transgender Iowans. A sigh of relief, I imagine, from you. Yes, most definitely, Ben. And, you know, frankly, I was surprised, obviously very pleasantly. So um, I feel like the lawmakers on that subcommittee, you know, actually were listening um, to what myself and others were saying about, you know, how this bill would impact Iowans and that there was really no point in even discussing it. So I'm glad that they did not advance the bill um, and that we can move on. Although (laughs) we'll see what that means for the rest of the session. Unfortunately, some other stuff coming up. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. Where were you when you heard the news that this bill failed to advance? You know, I really wish I was at the Capitol on Wednesday, but unfortunately I had a business commitment that I could not change. And so I was sitting uh, in my home office at my desk um, when I got the news that it didn't advance. So I had to do my own little celebration (laughs) by myself, Um, (laughs) but it it was very welcome news. I understand it was an emotional moment for those uh, at the Capitol who were against this bill. Uh, I don't know if you soaked up any of that media. It was an emotional moment for you? Uh, yes, it was. And I, I was able to see some of, of what was happening, you know, in the hallways and uh, in the Capitol on live stream. And so I was glad to be able to use technology in that way uh, and kind of be there in community with folks, even though I wasn't physically there. And, you know, I did I did get um, probably the, the biggest sense of hope that I've had in a long time. Um, again, knowing that the subcommittee was two Republicans and one Democrat, and it was a unanimous vote against advancing the bill. Um, when I was able to listen to portions of you know, p- the public comments and testifiers, there were so many more people there to testify against the bill than people lined up to testify for it. And again, I just it gave me so much hope to know that there are so many people here in Iowa that would, you know, take time out of their days and make the effort to go to the Capitol and be able to testify against it. Remind us, Chris, what were the particular dangers you and other uh, people um, saw for transgender people in the state had this bill advanced? Right. So, um, had this bill advanced and eventually, you know, signed into law, Iowa would have been the first state to remove gender identity protections from the Civil Rights Act. You know, that's not a distinction that that I think any of us want. And how it would particularly impact me and other members of the transgender community. Um, you know, gender identity is um, 
I said this on Monday, it's something that we all have, in fact, not just transgender people. Obviously, discrimination usually happens against a minority group. So in this case, transgender people are in the minority. Uh, we are most likely to be discriminated against because of our gender identity. And so taking that out would eliminate protections in housing, in um, credit and banking practices, and in public accommodations, which is essentially anywhere we go in public, restaurants, you know, stores, anything, um, we could be uh, discriminated against without any recourse. And so um, the whole disability part of it, I think, was confusing to a lot of people. Um, people thought, well, if you're going to add something to protect gender dysphoria and disability, then isn't that still going to protect transgender people? That is not the case. Um, not all transgender people would be protected, myself included, because I don't have a current diagnosis with gender dysphoria. Um, mm -hmm. And so it would also you know, not help a lot of the other members of the trans community who identify as non-binary or gender fluid and would never have a diagnosis. And frankly, it's very difficult and costly to get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So there are plenty of members, plenty of people within the transgender community that would never be able to get that diagnosis because of barriers. Chris, quickly before we say goodbye, um, you referenced it just a moment ago. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds introduced a bill yesterday, Thursday, that would define the words sex, man, and woman in state law, uh, I guess requiring changes to the way the government collects public health data, issues birth certificates, driver's licenses, and offers anti-discrimination protections. Uh, this is House Bill 649 creates a new section of code um, defining a person's sex as their sex assigned at uh, birth. What's your reaction to this? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is just another example of um, our governor and other Republicans in our legislature choosing a population to pick on, which is transgender people. Um, this bill is model modeled after language that has passed, unfortunately, in a few other states, including Kansas, last year. And I think this is just a political ploy that the governor is making to try to, you know, excite some of her supporters. But there's no reason that this is needed. Um, it's wrong to single out transgender people, which is, again, what this bill is doing. It would put a number of us in danger. So by having to list on your identification, your sex assigned at birth, actually be outing transgender people who, you know, otherwise are just trying to go about living their lives. And so they could be subject to discrimination and, and even to physical violence in some case. And just real quick on the physical violence piece, I think the thing that's most disturbing to me is that this bill could require, you know, uh, vi domestic violence shelters or rape crisis centers um, to treat transgender women as men. So they're not going to be treated as the women that they are. Uh, it's going to put federal funds at risk, I believe, even um, because of something called the Violence Against Women Act that provides federal funds to these types of shelters. So lots of impacts here that I'm not sure even the governor is thinking through. But the bottom line is, this is just another, um, you know, picking on a community that is uh, so marginalized and um, for the sole purpose of winning political points. Chris Mall, thank you again for your view. Uh, Chris, uh, a transgender man, Urbandale resident. Uh, thank you, Chris. Take care. Thanks so much, Ben. 
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, for more on this and other legislative activity this week at the State House, uh, let's check in with Robin Upsall. Robin is Iowa Capitol Dispatch reporter covering the legislature and politics. Hello again, Robin. Nice to talk with you, Ben. We we just heard about these bills connected with gender identity. What's your read on the significance, the failure of that bill to advance on Wednesday and this new bill um, introduced by the governor yesterday? Yeah, so this was something that I know a lot of folks are celebrating uh, who were uh, protesting against the bill that was discussed in subcommittee on Wednesday. I do think that it's um, important to keep in mind that when uh, some of the Republican legislators uh, who voted against advancing this bill talked about it, they were also having a conversation about um, further looks to changes to the Civil Rights Code of Iowa, uh, and particularly concerns that uh, were expressed by Representative Wills that some people are being given extra rights through the Civil Rights Act, and that that was something they might want to change. I also believe uh, what the governor's bill showed is that the conversation on protections uh, and the definitions around gender identity and around sex are not over this session. Um, And this is something through the governor's bill, potentially other legislation that is going to be a continuing discussion this, this year. Okay, let's go on to some other legislative highlights news this week. Uh, A proposal to gradually eliminate Iowa's individual income tax. Uh, Tell us about that. Yep. So this was introduced by uh, Representative Bobby Kaufman and Senator Dan Dawson, who are chairs of both uh, respective Ways and Means committees. So they have a plan that differs from the governor's plan, her tax cut plan, uh, that would reduce the income tax. They have a system they want to set up to fully eliminate it, which includes creating a new taxpayer relief trust, having IPERS invest money so that um, invested money could be used to gradually lower and eventually eliminate the income tax, along with proposing a constitutional amendment uh, related to Uh, requiring a two-thirds majority to increase it. So uh, House Speaker Pat Grassley said that this is something they're looking at as a longer-term discussion, but what what he said was the focus will still be on the governor's proposal. Mm -hmm. Robin, update us on the governor's plan. This has been controversial, the plan to overhaul area education agencies, so-called AEAs. These are the, this is the state's system of um, providing services for children w- with disabilities. Yep. So this is one of the top priorities Governor Reynolds laid out in her condition of the state, of the state address uh, earlier in January. So the House, uh, the House subcommittee did not pass this bill, but the Senate subcommittee did, which means that the legislation is still up for consideration. The House lawmakers said that there was still work to be done, and uh, the Senate senators agreed with that um, and said that they're looking at further changes outside of what the governor, the governor's proposed amendment would do, which um, gave things like a longer timeline um, and a, a few other changes that would allow uh, schools to keep using things like uh, general education funding or other services outside of special ed services, which was what the original bill 
restricted the AEAs too. So this legislation is still in play, but it looks like there will be more changes incoming if it progresses further. We have to take a break in just a few seconds, but in a very few words, Robin, this bill has uh, attracted a lot of attention, hasn't it? It definitely has. It's something that a a lot of folks, uh, families with students with disabilities, educators talk about the um, level of support that AEAs have provided them. But quite a few advocates said that they believe that that funding um, should go directly to schools to be appropriated. Robin, we'll be back in just a moment to discuss more legislative news. Robin Upsall, Iowa Capital Dispatch reporter. It's River to River from IPR News, a News Buzz edition. Stay tuned. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. And we're back with more of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, uh, continuing my conversation with Robin Upsall, Iowa Capital Dispatch uh, reporter uh, there at the legislature, covering politics as well. Robin, I wanted to ask you for an update about um, the Republican senators moving forward with this year's state supplemental aid bill providing funding for Iowa's K-12 schools. Yep. So the a Senate subcommittee passed a, a state supplemental aid, aid bill. That's what gives uh, Iowa's K-12 through school funding. However, that bill did not include any um, funding measures or the numbers for how much uh, schools will be receiving. Uh, it was just a shell bill to advance the conversation because uh, under under statute, legislators are required to meet a deadline of uh, passing SSA within 30 days of the governor releasing her budget. So mm-hmm. that will be, that deadline is next week. Uh, however, with conversations around AEAs and other education proposals that require funding, uh, the lawmakers I talked to said that those could impact uh, the general K-12 through and education appropriations conversations, which is why it's still up in the air at the moment. Mm-hmm. Also a bill this week that would require schools to show fetal development videos to students. Tell us about that and what's driving it. Yep. So this legislation that was proposed is kind of modeled off of something that has been done in other states. Uh, And it, it relies on and references a video in particular called Meet Baby Olivia, which was produced by this group called Live Action, a anti-abortion uh, organization. So it's something that uh, goes through the development of the fetus during a pregnancy uh, and does state uh, things such as that life begins at con- conception. Uh, advocates with family planning organizations spoke against it uh, as a ideological uh, ideological work, I guess you would say. 
um, but also advocates with uh, education organizations spoke against it because they were against mandating certain curriculum be included in health and human growth and development classes, which typically isn't how how education uh, curriculum standards operate. Also this week, state senators giving initial approval to a bill that would bring back the death penalty in Iowa. Death penalty has not been in Iowa since the 1960s, the last time an execution was carried out. Uh, and I know this has been introduced in, in many recent sessions. Uh, Robin, what cases would this uh, cover for the death penalty if it should advance and become law? Yeah, so the legislation discussed earlier this week uh, would be in first-degree murder cases where the person is charged with intentionally murdering a police officer or a prison employee. This is something that is uh, in uh, in response to, in some ways, the case of um, the murders in 2021 of a correctional officer and a nurse at a at the Anamosa State Penitentiary by two inmates. Uh, it is uh, something also that is not uh, is not restricted to this because there's another bill that is carried over from last session that is looking at bringing back the death penalty for um, cases where a minor is kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Uh, in both in both cases, uh, a lot of folks, uh, including many religious advocacy organizations, have registered in opposition to the bill uh, and to the other bill uh, reinstating a death penalty for not believing that the state should administer capital punishment. That's all the time we have for now. Robin Upsall, thank you so much for your excellent reporting and this discussion. Uh, Robin is with Iowa Capital Dispatch. Take care until next time, Robin. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Now we explore the final frontier. NASA will make history by sending the first humans to explore the region near the moon's South Pole on its Artemis III mission. And NASA's Office of STEM Engagement has selected five student teams to participate in an app development challenge aimed at that event. One of those teams is from Iowa. Let's meet the members of Team Frostbite, made up of Des Moines North High School students. Hello there. We're talking via Zoom. I can see you. Our audience cannot. But uh, greetings to you. Congratulations. And please, uh, let's do a quick uh, uh, run through of the five of you. Tell us your names. Hello, my name is Ramos Vakrell. I'm a sophomore at North High. Hello, my name is Jeffrey Allen, and I'm a junior at North High. My name is Sean Pacific Mukiza, and I'm a junior at North High. My name is Sujal Pokrell, and I'm a junior at North High. My name is Moss Luvan, and I'm a junior at Virtual Campus. Okay, very good. Moss, Romas, uh, Jeffrey, Sujal, and Champ. Uh, this is exciting. Congratulations. Your challenge in this case, and I'm just taking some of the NASA wording here. I want you to be more specific in a second. But it, from what I gather from the NASA website, to create an application to visualize the moon's South Pole region and display essential information for navigating the lunar surface and receiving signals from Earth. Now, that's a very broad challenge. Help us uh, understand what that means for you in your case, your project. 
okay, so this is champ talking. Um, to be more specific, um, for us or the high school students, um, they essentially, so they give us data of different lunar regions or different areas on the moon. And we look at those different regions and select which one we think would be the best choice to send an astronaut on, taking into consideration safety to make safety and then efficiency in their research. My name is Sajal, and uh, to add on to that, um, the the data that we were given was this high slope longitude and latitude. We had to visualize uh, the moon within just within that just with that data. To visualize that data, we take that we take a bunch of numbers essentially, which is what they give us, and we use our skills as a team to then take those numbers and to create an application using different software. So then we could present. Uh, a video or a game or simulation to uh, that simulates what this astronaut would be doing on the moon. So it sounds like you need to be really acquainted with that terrain there. Is this a case where you are imagining yourself on that terrain, imagining what that terrain looks like? Uh, and if you were traversing that terrain, what you would need to help you? Am I understanding that at all? This is still a stomp. But for that, we really, the biggest thing, um, well, one, I would say it definitely does take a little bit of consideration and creative thought, but we really take into consideration um, like everything in terms of one, what's first, what's the purpose or what does NASA or what do we want to get out of this? And we want to expand our knowledge and information um, and learn more and gain research, but also within doing that, make sure that our astronauts are safe, no matter who it is. So taking all of those things into consideration with, because it was a 10-week challenge. So a part of that time was spent planning um, and making sure that everything from safety to efficiency was, um, was well thought out throughout our application and what that astronaut would be doing in our application. We all have apps. We all use multiple apps in our lives. Um, what does this app that you've created look like right now? Can you describe it? This is Moss talking. Uh, the app we created is a rover or an avatar traversing a, um, a moon surface uh, that goes to 10 communication link checkpoints, which uh, are just spots where the Earth is visible to the moon to ensure for undisrupted communication. Um, then, then this is Sujal and the app that we made, um, as Ma said, we, we made an app that visualizes the moon and makes sure there's points along like the, the region where they can communicate back to earth. But how we made this app is using Unity, which is a game engine. So in the end, we decided to make a game. I'm not sure if this was already explained. So I'm Shamp. But we have that rover, and essentially what we could do is we could have somebody, whether it's like mission planning or the idea is they could go into this interactive um, and easy-to-use easy application where they select their rover, and our application shows them ex exactly where that rover would go, how it would look like, including that terrain, which is the data source from NASA, and it makes it easy to think and plan ahead of what those astronauts will be doing on the moon. You said you've been at work at this for 10 weeks. Do you have any idea of, there are five of you, how many man hours total have gone into this? 
Would you want to have a guess at that, anybody? <laughs> My name is Jeffrey, and many, many hours. Many hours doesn't sound like an engineer's answer. <laughs> or a scientific answer. This is champ, because to put this into like, I would say, because a lot of a lot of this, so including to put this in perspective, eight hours, eight hours in a day we spent at school. There was multiple days or weeks in a row, like several hundred of hours, I would say, before school, after school, on the weekends. I remember a big challenge in the beginning was finding spaces to work in where we found workarounds, work, um, putting together, going to coffee shops. We ended up also booking um, the public library study rooms and using that as a resource. And then also utilizing like online resources like Discord to like allocate meeting time to work together um, and occasionally at school. Um, but it, it it was a lot, a lot of hours. Like on the weekends, I remember spending over eight to 10 hours or even 12 hours just working on this project on multiple occasions. And I would say, because it's, and the thing is, it's not like previous projects that we've done in school that have been a little bit, that have been uh, structured. This has showed us like, um, and also because a lot of us, um, we also go to central campus, central academy and virtual campus in different schools and live in different areas. So just commuting and everything. So it took up, ended up wow. taking up a lot more time than we would have expected. So next week is an event. The next step. What is that step? My name is Moss Luvan, uh, and we will be interviewed by NASA on Wednesday, February 7th. Uh, uh, and this interview will determine whether or not we go to the final stage, which we will present our project to NASA employees at Houston. Regardless of what happens, if you do make it to the final in Houston or not, uh, I'd like to have you each perhaps share quickly how you think this may shape your future. Uh, this is Ramal speaking, and I'd just like to say this challenge has really opened our eyes and, in a way, uh, sort of allowed us to appreciate all the opportunities that uh, are truly in the future for us because we've gained experience in a lot of areas and a lot of technical areas that we all had um, interest in prior to beginning this challenge. But this challenge really just solidified all that. So, yeah. All right. This is Jeff Jeffrey. And um, I'd say one of the big things that it kind of brought us all together and we've got to know each other a little more with assisting each other and um, helping each other out, making sure we're all here for each other and making sure we're all like have clear minds because this has also been very stressful for us as well. And it's really opened my mind to um, more things as if I wanted to be a software engineer or work in the Air Force Academy or things like that. So I'm Sean Pacific and it's definitely solidified a lot of what I've wanted or I've been planning to in pursuing and definitely because as a junior myself and we have uh, three other juniors and one sophomore thinking about next year, especially in preparation for college. My name is Sujal Pokra and uh, the, the, this project has um, allowed me to pursue my interest in, in technology and it, it just confirmed that I would like to be working with that technology. Uh, this is Masavan. I, I completely agree. Uh, I, 
my goal is to be a software engineer and learning uh, or getting experience with coding in general has just been a really big experience. Good luck to you, uh, the members of Team Frostbite, made up of Des Moines North High School students. Thank you for this conversation via Zoom. Romas, uh, Moss, Jeffrey, Sajal, and Champ, uh, I wish you all the best, and we'll follow this, uh, and we'll cross our fingers so that uh, you hopefully make it to Houston. Great luck, guys. You've put a tremendous effort in it, and we're proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, when we last spoke with our state climatologist on this program, it was mid-January. A record-breaking snowstorm had hit earlier that week. Another system had just arrived, bringing in dangerous blizzard conditions. What a difference a few weeks can make. Uh, Yesterday, temperatures around the state reaching for 60 degrees. Let's get the view of Justin Glisson, state climatologist of Iowa. Hi, Justin. Hi, Ben. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. Well, yesterday especially made us believe there will be an early spring. What does the science say? So the science says that if you look at the the climatological outlooks that the Climate Prediction Center produces, we're in a strong El Nino. And typically, as we move through February into March, we do see above average temperatures. And that's definitely been the story over the last several days. Temperatures well above average across the upper Midwest, melting that record snowpack that we had from the two systems that you mentioned just several weeks ago when temperatures were anywhere from 60 to 70 degrees colder than what they are now. So if we look at the science and our outlooks, they do suggest warmer temperatures in February and getting into March. Now, of course, we're going to have cold snaps. We're going to have systems come through. But if we look at the general behavior of strong El Nino late winter into spring, definitely tend to be warmer in temperatures. Yeah, it was really quite remarkable yesterday, Justin. I saw people in shirt sleeves, even shorts, walking alongside huge piles of snow <laughs> here. I don't know if you got out in your in your T-shirt and your shorts, but that how unusual is that, that turnaround? Not very unusual, especially in wintertime. We're in a what we call meridional flow, very high amplitude waves that are coming through in the large-scale atmosphere, troughs and ridges, as we say. When we have troughs, which we had a few weeks ago, that's where we see the Arctic air outbreak. The polar vortex is destabilized, and you get a rush of that Arctic air. Those are uh, in a trough-like feature. Behind those troughs are ridges. Meteorology is the study of equilibrium. So whenever you have a high-amplitude trough, you have to have a high-amplitude ridge behind it. And hence, we see a temperature change over the last several days uh, that is mimicking uh, early uh, spring. Ending with some good news on this Groundhog Day. Justin Glisson, state climatologist of Iowa. Always good to have your expertise on our show, Justin. Until next time. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. I'd say that I had spring fever But I know Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. 
Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. A passing of note, Dr. Deborah Ann Turner, a Mason City native, whose pioneering medical career and political advocacy earned national accolades, died last Sunday from complications of a pulmonary embolism at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. Turner specialized in gynecological oncology for 35 years. She went on to serve as president of the League of Women Voters of the U.S. Dr. Turner's passion for women's and Iowans health care was evident even after she left practice in 2015 and retired as the Associate Medical Director of Planned Parenthood of North Central States in 2022, this past October, Turner spoke about the importance of women's reproductive health care in an interview with IPR's Talk of Iowa host, Charity Nebbe. Here's a highlight where she talks about rural maternal health care deserts. I think it's time that we really started looking at Let's spend our medical health care dollars where they need to be spent. And that's on our folks who have less access and where maybe you're not getting your providers as excited to go to those areas. I always think in Iowa, the great thing is to grow your own. And so if communities say, okay, we need a provider in this region and in this specialty, find some in their community or in their surrounding community that really wants to do that, help finance their way through school, help finance their way through training and say, you agree to come back and give us service, you know? And it's amazing how well that works. There are a lot of our uh, Western states that do that, and they're very successful with that. So I'm kind of a grow-your-own kind of girl. Yeah. <laughs> that from October. We'll hear another excerpt here in a moment. She was a trailblazer her whole life. She was the first black woman to be accepted into a sorority as an undergrad at Iowa State University and the first African-American woman to be certified by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Gynecological Oncology. While she once said she owed everything to her Iowa upbringing, her undergrad experience at ISU, and medical training at the University of Iowa, she also acknowledged the example she set for others. Uh, She mentioned that in this excerpt from that same Talk of Iowa program from this past October. And the interesting thing about that is saying if you invest more in providers of color, that doesn't mean that every provider of color that gets trained and goes out there is necessarily going to serve in a community they came from unless they are obligated. But most of them will. But that also means I felt as a medical when I was teaching in the medical schools and that that my presence was as important to my students of color as it was to my majority students at that time who were white in that they saw that people of color could be in these roles and practice and be great physicians or whatever as well. So this is a way of making sure that you're, that others understand that physicians of color have the adequate training and are equally capable as physicians who aren't of color. And I think that is a real piece, too. Joining us now to help us further remember Dr. Deborah Turner celebrate her life and achievements. Therese Grant, a co-president of the Iowa League of Women Voters, thank you for joining us. Therese, condolences uh, for the loss of Dr. Turner. Thank you so much, Ben. I can, I can tell you right now that the 
all of us with the league here in Iowa and nationally, too, are just absolutely heartbroken with the loss of Dr. Deborah Turner. She was a vital part of our league and just an inspiration to all of us. I wonder if you can recount a bit of her rise to become president of the League of Women Voters of the U.S. and and what qualities made her such a good fit for that leadership position? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll start back at the beginning. Um, so uh, Dr. Turner was, uh, she, she became a member of her local league there in, Met, in the Des Moines area, Metro Des Moines, in about 2010. She right away became president and then joined the state board in about 2011, became vice president and then co-president in 2016. And then at about that time, 2016, she was actually elected to the board of directors of the National League of Women Voters. She served on a few committees, a finance committee, governance committee, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which was a very um, important part of uh, her role there in the national board. And then it was in 2022 that Dr. Turner was elected president of the National League of Women Voters. And she served this role uh, as an amazing woman because I think of her passion for mm. uh, the, the ideals and, and many of the issues that the league uh, serves. Of course, voting being, of course, number one. Uh, Dr. Deborah Turner, uh, in her role as, as president, uh, championed the fact that the League of Women Voters, the League of Women Voters was, was formed about the time that women got the right to vote back in 1920. And so the League of Women Voters, as soon as women, women got the right to vote, the league was formed. And voting has been a very important role for the League of Women Voters, and I know it's important to Dr. Turner. In fact, as, a, as the national board president, um, if there were problems in certain states, the league was very uh, involved in perhaps filing lawsuits and making sure that elections were fair and safe for everyone. And... Dr. Turner was somebody that was so admired and so loved by all of us. She was, for me, she was my personal mentor. Um, when mm. I became the president of the League of Women Voters here in, in Iowa, you know, if there was a problem or an issue that I needed help with, I could turn to, to my friend Deb Turner and she would help me because she was this kind of person who was compassionate and caring. We all just loved her and, and her passing has again, been quite de- devastating to all of us. So it sounds like you and others will be saying for the future challenges uh, uh, to the League of, of Women Voters in certain situations, what uh, what would Dr. Turner have done here, right? I mean, as a mentor, that's what we do with mentors, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And, and I'm sure uh, I'm not the only person that that felt that someone like Dr. Turner was somebody who who mentored me and who would who would you know help me and assist me in making decisions or you know just giving advice on what I should do because again she just was such an amazing person and what really is amazing about Dr. Turner is in spite of the accolades in spite of all of the wonderful fabulous things she she did she was one of the most humble women I've ever known just someone that you could just relate to on a one-to-one basis that, you know, it, it was just, it, which, which was why I think we all loved her so much because she was somebody who cared for you and you knew that right away. 
Therese, do you have a special personal memory of Dr. Deb Turner that uh, you will hold and cherish? Oh, golly. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with her uh, over the years that, that I knew Dr. Turner. And, um, you know, I watched her give a lot of speeches. Uh, and and probably maybe one of the times, too, that, that is very special was the fact that I was invited to her wedding um, that she had on the campus of Iowa State University, Memorial Union. I mean, this was... Mm. This was a place that she loved very much. And so just being at her wedding, seeing her coming down the aisle with her husband, David Conley, is a very, very special moment because could, you could just see how happy she was, you know, at, at this special time in her life. And it was just, yeah, it was a very special moment to, to witness her, her wedding, you know, um, at a time in her life when she wasn't a, you know, a young woman anymore. And it was just a beautiful thing to see her uh, getting married to her husband, David Connolly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Therese, may I ask about the last time you spoke with her? Well, actually, um, it wasn't that long ago. It was about a week and a half ago. Uh, Deb called me because um, she was asked to give a speech. And she unfortunately couldn't be there at that time. It was uh, for an organization here in Iowa. And she wanted to know if I could do it in her place. And so that was the last time I talked to her. Again, it was only about a week and a half ago. And so, um, yeah, um, that was the last time. Yeah. Well, Therese Grant, uh, thank you so much for joining us and helping us uh, remember Dr. Deborah Ann Turner, celebrate her life, and uh, uh, think about the tremendous... uh, beneficial impact she's had in so many areas of of Iowa's society and our national society. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. It's been my pleasure and honor to talk to you about my dear friend, Dr. Deborah Turner. Therese Grant, co-president of the Iowa League of Women Voters. Uh, Dr. Deborah Ann Turner, a Mason City native, a pioneer in medicine and political advocacy, died last Sunday at the age of 73. And that does it for this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this February 2nd. Not only Groundhog Day today, February 2nd, but did you know on this date in 1936, Babe Ruth was elected into the um, Baseball Hall of Fame. And in 1945, the first 45 RPM vinyl record was released, February 2nd, 1945. Joining us now, someone who I, I would imagine has a 45 RPM record collection, the great Bambino of the best music in new music and old favorites. <laughs> IPR's Tony Daner, our Studio One host. How you doing, Tony? Hey there, Ben. I am great. Yeah, you have a 45 collection? So I actually, I don't now, but I did when I was a kid. I had a Fisher-Price record player that I listened to 45s on. <laughs> a lot of my mom's old Beatles 45s and also 
one by Sonny and Cher, and uh, the song. Mm. Uh, so she had the she had the forty five four I got you babe as I'm sure everyone did but I was a fan sure. of the B side it's gonna rain, which oh, not a okay. great song but as a kid I loved it and I, it I did I did I, not realize until many years later that actually no I got you babe is the much bigger song. I wonder if we share this that uh, have you ever uh, and I'll, I'll tell you first the, the uh, forty five that comes to mind for me Indian Reservation Paul Revere and the Raiders. 1971. I looked it up. It went sure. platinum, as a matter of fact, <laughs> oh, selling over a million wow. copies. We played it. I and my siblings played it so often, we ruined the vinyl. Have you ever had a 45 wow. or a, another vinyl record that just got ruined from playing? I have a lot that it seems like are already <laughs> ruined. Like I picked them up used <laughs> and they're skipping. It's like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> probably speaks to the low <laughs> the quality hazards of, of the being needle, a vinyl collector the, yeah or, or the needle on our yeah then when needles did actually touch the medium they were probably reading. yeah yep. <laughs> <laughs> tony what do you have to groove us into the weekend yes so let's start off with an album we're very much looking forward to at studio one it is the new record from Brittany howard we were Huge fans of her solo debut. It came out a few years ago, an instant classic. And she also put out some great records with the band Alabama Shakes. Her new record is coming uh, soon, I think a week or two. It's called What Now? There's a couple singles out from it already, including the song we are about to hear. It's Brittany Howard with Prove It To You. I've never been at saying what I mean Every time I try Prove it to you, a new tune by uh, Brittany Howard. We have time for one more, Tony. Okay, let's go with Aaron Lee Tasjan, guitarist and songwriter, whose music we are a little newer to. His uh, previous album called Tasjan, 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 all exclamation marks in there, <laughs> came out in 2021. Little under the radar, but uh, I'm all in on this guy, especially after this uh, new song we just got. And there's a really hilarious music video for this that kind of emulates an older horror movie. And I think this song is going to appear on Halloween shows on Studio One for years to come. It's Aaron Lee Tasjan with Horror of It All. Oh, my God.
Aaron Lee Tasjian, Horror of It All. Tony, thanks for that. Well, whether it's indie rock, singer-songwriters, blues, local or regional music, Tony, you got it all at uh, Studio One, don't you? We sure do, and it's uh, Monday through Saturday night at 7 o'clock. And then uh, Saturday afternoons, we have Studio One All Access, Mark, Cece, and I, discussing our new featured release and all kinds of other great stuff. Do check it out, IPR's Studio One. Thanks for grooving us into the weekend. Let's go out with Taz, Jin. Uh, Tony, thank you very much. Uh, hope there's no horror in your weekend. Thanks for <laughs> grooving us into the weekend. Thanks, Ben. Same to you. River to River Today, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend.